Welcome to the 396th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Philip Zelico. He served as the executive director of the 9-11 Commission and also served on the president's intelligence advisory boards in the administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. We will discuss the work of the COVID Commission Planning Group. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 11th, 2022, there are 5,494,582 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The United States is reporting 839,500 deaths. And in South Korea, where I am, the death total has reached 6,071 from COVID-19 with 1,861 of those deaths coming in the last 30 days. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is COVID death toll among 9-11 first responders and survivors nears grim milestone. This was a piece that was published just before September 11, 2021. It was published on the 9th of September by Samantha Maldonado in The City. Decades ago, Stephen Brandau joined fellow NYPD officers to dig through smoldering rubble at Ground Zero, dedicating about a month to the massive recovery effort. He spent another five years with the department before retiring in 2006, and then worked as a security guard manager. In late December of 2020, Brandau contracted COVID, and he was hospitalized and put on life support for about six weeks. His wife, Gladys, thought he'd pull through, but in February, Stephen Brandau died of COVID-19 at age 56. He was the kind of person who befriended whomever he met, said his wife, who lives on Long Island with their 15-year-old son, also named Stephen. Brandau coached Little League and helped with Boy Scouts when their son was younger and shoveled snow for elderly neighbors during the winter. He was a people person, said Gladys Brandau, a 51-year-old account manager for AT&T. Whatever he can do to help people, he was just a very down-to-earth and very, very helpful person. As the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks was arriving just over one and a half years into the pandemic this past September, the official count of 9-11 survivors and first responders who have died of COVID-19 was nearing 100. That's more than double the number of fatalities reported last September 11. Some 29 survivors and 68 first responders of the more than 112,000 enrolled in the World Trade Center Health Program had died from the virus as of August's end, according to data compiled by the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which oversees the program. That number includes Mr. Brandau. Advocates suspect the true toll is far higher. 
given the estimated hundreds of thousands of first responders, survivors, and other people with 9-11 related illnesses who haven't joined the program. Michael Barash, a lawyer who represents more than 25,000 people who are applying to the separate victim compensation fund, said more than 100 of his clients alone have died of the virus. And it wasn't just COVID, he said. It was COVID and COPD or COVID and cancer. Meanwhile, the CDC has also counted nearly 7,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in 9-11 responders and survivors who are at particular risk of the effects of the virus. Many first responders and survivors suffer from respiratory illnesses such as asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD as a result of breathing toxic contaminated air after the attacks. Those with cancer treatments such as chemotherapy can compromise immune systems too. Such conditions can make people more vulnerable to the coronavirus and its worst symptoms. An estimated 400,000 people were exposed to 9-11 toxic dust in the aftermath of the attacks, and only a quarter have been screened for 9-11 related illnesses. Far more people have died as a result of those illnesses than were killed on that day, according to a report by the Department of Justice. In 2020, days before the city largely shut down to guard against the worsening pandemic, the head of the city's public hospital system warned that 9-11 first responders and survivors were particularly vulnerable. We do very much worry about people from the World Trade Center incident, city public hospital system CEO, Dr. Mitchell Katz said at the time. This is New York, where we have a number of people who may be suffering from lung dysfunction due to their exposure. So it's basically that people, when your lung function and, and structure are not normal, your risk is greater. First responders and survivors initially had little help available to them to secure a COVID-19 vaccine, despite being eligible for early access in mid-February of 2021. In September of 2021, first responders, survivors, and their families had an opportunity to get vaccinated for COVID and be screened for a bevy of conditions, including breast, prostate, and skin cancer during a health fair in Manhattan. Carmen, Carmen Cubero, 58, was one of the survivors who got her shot. The Staten Island resident worked in maintenance at the World Trade Center during 9-11. Cabero was nervous about getting the vaccine. She has multiple sclerosis and worried about side effects. But with the FDA approval and increasing numbers of those around her getting the vaccine, she figured it was her turn, she said in Spanish, with her partner, Tony Hernandez, interpreting. Everybody in my family got it, so it was my time to get it, she said. Gladys Brandau still can't believe her husband is gone but she and her son are taking as much solace as they can in support from family, friends, and neighbors in Oceanside, some of the same ones that her husband was known to help out. And the town recently named an avenue in honor of him. The Brandows, who met in Vermont on New Year's Eve in 2002, would have celebrated their 17th wedding anniversary in September. They had dreams of retiring together, maybe relocating and being snowbirds. All that is just gone, Gladys Brandow said. My husband was a very strong person, and nobody can believe that this virus took him so young. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, one I've really been looking forward to. Let me introduce my guest, Philip Zelico. Philip Zelico is the White Burkett Miller Professor of History at the University of Virginia where he's also served as Dean of the Graduate School and Director of the Miller Center. His scholarly work has focused on critical episodes in American and world history. He was a trial and appellate lawyer, and then a career diplomat before taking academic positions at Harvard and then Virginia. 
His government career includes federal service during five administrations, positions including the White House, State Department, and the Pentagon. His last full-time government position was as the counselor of the Department of State, a deputy to Secretary Condoleezza Rice. He was the executive director of the 9-11 Commission. And he's one of the few individuals ever to serve on the president's intelligence advisory boards for presidents of both parties in the administrations of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He's also a historian who's published many books, most recently, The Road Less Traveled, The Secret Battle to End World War I. Philip Zelico, welcome to COVID Calls. Glad to be with you. So I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the COVID situation is looking like there. Sure. Uh, I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the University of Virginia is based. And uh, the COVID situation in Virginia is um, um, relatively good compared with um, other states in the United States in general. Virginia has probably above average vaccination rates. Um, It's had um, probably above average public health performance. Charlottesville, the Charlottesville area in particular, is blessed with strong university hospital um, that um, has managed its business reasonably well. And the university has um, also managed its COVID issues reasonably well during the crisis. But of course, uh, um, Virginia hospitals are glutted right now with COVID patients the way everybody's are uh, as this uh, variant tears through the country. I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of this time, and I know it must be hard to choose one, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing something that really sticks in your memory of this COVID era. Oh, I don't really have... uh, um, a good colorful anecdote. Um, you were just telling stories at the uh, at the beginning of your hour that are so powerful that I think anything that I would have to offer would be um, pallid by comparison. So I think I'll just uh, 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 keep my uh, stories to myself. Okay, that's fine. So uh, I'd like to. You know, we're going to talk about the COVID Commission Planning Group. Uh, I'd like to lay some of the foundation before we do that and, and talk about your background a little bit as executive director of the 9-11 Commission. And I guess what I wanted to ask you first is how you see that work now. I mean, you're a historian as well as having served in government at many levels. And the distance of time sometimes helps clarify things. Um, I wonder if looking back now, how you see that commission's work um, and, and let's use that as a launching point to then talk about the COVID commission. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm best known as the, um, at least in the commission business, as the executive director of the 9-11 commission. Uh, but I also directed another bipartisan commission that's not quite as well known. But it's the commission that led to the last time Amer- the United States passed a bill to reform its election system. This is a huge issue right now in the Congress. Of course. Yeah. Uh, the, um, the last time we actually passed such a bill, and really the only time we ever passed such a bill since the Voting Rights Act of 1965, was a piece of legislation called the Help America Vote Act that was passed in 2002 to respond to the debacle of the 2000 elections and the controversies over ballot counting in Florida. 
So a commission entirely private was created after that uh, called the National Commission on Federal Election Reform that was co-chaired by two former presidents, Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. Uh, I was the director of that commission, uh, entirely privately sponsored, but with um, eventually developed very strong support from both Democrats and Republicans to issue bipartisan recommendations to reform America's election system that were um, attacked by um, the polls on both parties, yet passed with a wide bipartisan margin um, in 2002. So that was all the prelude to my appointment as the director of the 9-11 Commission um, to come back, which, which happened at the beginning of 2003. Uh, to come back to your question about how the commission report um, holds up historically, um, it actually holds up um, uh, remarkably well. Uh, I, in the various anniversaries, we go back over various things and see if some new evidence has come out. In fact, at one point um, on one particular issue, the Congress actually created something in 2015 called the 9-11 Review Commission, mm -hmm. basically to go back over some of its findings and see if it, they needed to be revised on a, some particular issues having to do with possible support networks in the United States. And actually that review commission report concluded that the original commission's report had that about right. Um, so as I go back through it, in fact, I, uh, I'm actually a little bit surprised by this. Uh, I thought we were laying a good foundation and had broken through on a lot of subjects. Uh, but um, I thought that there would be a, a, a lot more that would supplement our work since then. And actually, um, I thought I would have thought our work would need more revision than is now the case. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think that if we ever uh, try the 9-11 suspects, which I hope we will do, um, I, my guess is that the trials will bring out more evidence that goes beyond what was in our report. And I hope that's the case. But for now, that uh, that foundation of understanding has held up well over the last uh, 20 years. I'm fascinated that you draw together, and I'm really glad you do, that the Voting Commission and the 9-11 Commission, because right. when you put it that way, I mean, you really were working on commissions nonstop then for several years. It's yes, sort of that's like right. One combined, in your own mind, it must have been commission all the time, and, and, and that meant you were developing quite unique skills that um, I wonder if I could draw you out on a little bit. For example, putting together the staffs. That's right. Just uh, uh, determining the agenda. You know, you don't. You have a limited amount of time. Every major news organization is paying attention. Congress is paying attention. This is high stakes scholarship. I guess we can use that word. How did you think about crafting the staffs and setting the research agenda for the 9/11 Commission? Sure, it's um, and it, it flows directly into the work now to plan a possible COVID commission because it was exactly this experience that caused people to approach me. The COVID commission thing wasn't my idea. Mm -hmm. Other people had this idea that we, we needed to have a national COVID commission. And then they reached out to me and asked for ideas. The question's actually just like the one you just asked. And I gave some answers and they said, okay, smart guy, 
we like your answers. Those are such interesting answers. Why don't you now run a group to plan this thing? So, uh, and, the, and several foundations uh, ponied up the money for me to do that. But to uh, come back to your point, um, it's actually a mix of substantive skills and also um, um, how to uh, how to how to earn authority uh, from the way you do your work in, in extremely political environments. Um, just because you create some bipartisan commission doesn't mean that everyone will immediately kowtow to whatever it says. Right. Um, the chair and vice chair of the 9-11 Commission, uh, uh, actually the original chair and vice chair were very prominent public figures who then immediately resigned uh, because they would have to disclose all of their private interests. They were named Henry Kissinger and George Mitchell. Um, so Kissinger and Mitchell immediately resigned. The, the backup folks, the plan B who took their place was a former New Jersey governor named Tom Kane and a former Indiana congressman named Lee Hamilton. At the time they were appointed, Kane and Hamilton were not fam nationally famous people, but um, they were known in Washington circles, but uh, hardly known outside of Washington. But uh, they earned a certain stature and authority by the way they conducted themselves and then empowered me as an executive director to help you know, as the senior full-time employee of the commission, if you will, to kind of run the, uh, organize this. And our approach to this, that first of all, was that the staff had to be picked on a nonpartisan basis, a unitary nonpartisan staff. See, the, the, for your listeners may not realize that when Congress does investigations, congressional staffs, both not just personal staffs, but committee staffs, are also majority and minority staffs. So they're uh, partisan staffs on the committees. Right. And um, rather than adopt that kind of approach, we instead hire a unitary staff. And that instead of the staff working for individual commissioners, as if the commissioners were like congressmen, instead the staff all reports up basically to me. And then I take my orders from the commission as transmitted through the chair and vice chair. So what this means is that if a commissioner wants to influence the work of the staff, that commissioner has to work through all his colleagues to get the commission as a whole to agree on guidance that the chair and vice chair would then give to me. And then I in turn could give authoritative guidance to our staff, which then could have clear nonpartisan guidelines about how to proceed. Now, when I go through it this way, this mm -hmm. may seem obvious, but it's very, it's very different from the way many of these investigations are organized. We also, when we looked at staff, um, our approach was uh, very much to look past, to get a very strong mix of subject matter skills. So we had a lot of people who were, had to be very knowledgeable about the way government worked so that they could ask knowledgeable questions and do knowledgeable work in the records. But then you had to leaven those with outsiders, some of them historians, for example, mm -hmm. who were um, accustomed to 
trying to go through lots of different factual information and then try to sh construct a narrative for, uh, out of all this blizzard of data. Um, I mean, uh, that's a, a little bit of a point about process and personnel. Mm -hmm. Let me make a point about um, substantive approaches that's very relevant to this crisis. Mm -hmm. A standard uh, in, in, the, in the health world of bio, uh, biomedical research, the standard way in which people in that world are used to evaluating policies is um, through hindsight analysis. Here's the, what they do is that um, there was an intervention. So we'll construct a study in which we have the people who had an intervention and a control group who, you know, who did not have the intervention. And then we'll do basically an AB study of well, what happened to the people who took the pill or adopted this procedure or who did, you know, wore masks, you know, fill in the blank. I mean, that, the basic format, in other words, is we wait until after um, the episode is over. Right. Then we set up our, our AB study and then we say, aha, this intervention was more effective than X. Uh, you know, non-intervention. Um, this is the characteristic style, and it sounds very good. It's a scientific method, and then uh, then you would and then you would write a report that is a very hindsight report, saying, in retrospect, based on this analysis, we judge you should have done A, B, C, and D. All right. Now, that's a habitual mindset for how you would conduct an investigation sure. using that culture. It turns out that if you approach um, the understanding the COVID crisis in this way, I think you'll actually generate um, way more heat than light. You'll, I think you'll actually obscure the issues. So wh why would that be true? Hmm. Because the people who are actually making, what you want to understand is the world of choices. Hmm. And the people making those choices, of course, had no hindsight knowledge. So um, if you want to critique their choices, first you need to understand their choices. That doesn't mean you kind of wait till after it's all over and then play gotcha. Like, ah, you chose the wrong box. Instead, reconstruct their choices and ask yourself, at the time they make their choice, you know, get yourself in the world of these people. Hmm. What did they know about what was going on? What, was in, what information was available to them? What did they think were their options? What tools did they have at their disposal at the time they had to make these choices? Um, and uh, what was the world in which they had to make these choices? What other stakeholders did they have to listen to? What other influences were weighing on them or not? When you go through that, instantly all sorts of insights come out mm -hmm. about this crisis. Uh, in our planning group, for example, we've now um, kind of been mapping the landscape of the crisis in order to plan what might be the largest crisis investigation in American history. Right. So it's, it requires a lot of spade work just to kind of map the landscape. We've done hundreds of listening sessions now with people on every aspect of the crisis, victims, doctors, 
all sorts of scientists, including people outside the United States. Um, we haven't talked to every uh, all the experts, but we've talked to a, a very large portion number of them, and from many disciplines. So, including a lot of the public health, some of the public health officials. Mm-hmm. As soon as you reconstruct the world of their choices, all sorts of insights begin to fall out for you. I'm going to give you an illustration of what mm-hmm. I mean, Scott. Please do. Um, a, a lot of the, in the first wave of choices in early 2020, people had very poor understanding of even what was going on. They had, they had terrible, and we were under, and basically think of it as a war in which an, an, an alien microorganism is attacking your country. But you have no intelligence on where the enemy has landed. Right. You have no intelligence on right. where the disease is spreading. There's a big controversy, for instance, that's what pretty well known among the people who follow this, having to do with Seattle, index case in Seattle, testing problems in Seattle, which are true, by the way. And we've talked to the people, some of the people who are involved in that. Um, it may turn out, though, that at the time all that was going on in Seattle, the disease was already spreading in Los Angeles. Right. But no one knew it. Right. So, first of all, they're operating in, a, in a, an incredible fog because we never set, we don't have a public health system in America that does a very good job of gathering situation awareness of what's going on biomedically in the country. Hmm. If I may digress, we, I think many of your listeners may realize that basically the American public health system was designed in the Cleveland administration. And it's very well optimized to succeed in the Cleveland administration. It's, um, which for those of your listeners who don't late 19th century, 1890. Right, exactly. So we have a public health system that is really very functional in its readiness to deal with an urban cholera outbreak. Right. All right. That's not what, uh, and that explains a lot of things about the way the system is designed, the emphasis on state and local authorities, um, the kinds of powers they used to need and have to, uh, you know, to deal with a cholera outbreak in some tenement complex in a, some town in a situation where most of the states didn't have a problem. But this, of course, we're now in the 21st century and we're in a very different world. But we fundamentally, structurally still have that late 19th century system design. Uh, and everyone can, in our country anyway can see that that design was completely overwhelmed uh, almost immediately. And it, uh, people we talked to, for instance, would sigh that you're in you're conducting this from south korea right that's right so um if you get into the history of the south korean health system public health system the koreans will tell you actually that a generation ago they got a lot of good advice from the americans about how to set up their health system well let me tell you the americans are now envious of the South Korean system. Sure. Because they gave advice to the Koreans on how to do this. The Koreans followed a lot of that advice and improved on it. And meanwhile, the Americans themselves don't have a system nearly as good. (laughs) Because in their own country, of course, they never had a system that followed any such advice. So um, 
To come back to then the main point I wanted to make with you, Scott, which is about reconstructing choices. You imagine the world in which I don't know what's going on. Then you look at the tools they have available to work with. Um, for instance, uh, do they have supplies of masks? No. Do they have guidelines on how to ventilate buildings and make them safe? No. In fact, they don't even understand that for a while that ventilation is even a key issue. Um, they don't even really understand how the disease was spreading among people. There's a whole little controversy having to do with, you know, the aerosol, the fact that we didn't understand the aerosol right. problem until well into 2020. Right. Uh, but put yourself in the world of the public health authorities, like, what do I do? I feel like my health system's gonna collapse if I don't do something. So for instance, we have this huge controversy in our country about lockdowns, one. We locked down way more places than we needed to probably before we needed to lock them down because we didn't know where the virus was. We couldn't wait till it got to place X because we wouldn't know if it had gotten there. Right. Right. So that's one. Two is when uh, when they did these lockdowns, which mainly mainly in March, and April of 2020, the people who did them all thought that they were doing lockdowns that would last weeks, not months. Right weeks because right. uh, the they thought that this was a stopgap emergency measure to try to buy them a few weeks. Right. We so, all remember being then, told. But, yeah. but the problem then, in a way, if you get back into their world, the problem is, is once you do the lockdowns and you've, uh, how do you un unlock them? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what tools and information would you have needed to have in order to undo the lockdowns in what would now be a very frightened country. And let's suppose you have a workplace in which half of your employees in your restaurant want to go back to work and are ready to serve people, but half of them are scared to go back. Like maybe they have a, they have a, an elderly mom, all kinds of reasons. Mm -hmm. and they live in a congregate living facility of some kind. Um, so you got half the employees who want to go back the, the boss wants to open the business, but half of them are scared. So, and the scared ones, and the boss says, I'm going to open this up. We're, you got to go to work. The scared people say, I won't go to work. Fine, you're fired. If they're fired because they wouldn't go to work in a lawfully open business, they're not eligible for unemployment assistance. Now, so then if you're a public health director who wants to protect the scared people, the only thing you can do to protect them is shut down the business. Shut down the business, right? Because that's the only way they can get unemployment. I, I, I'm trying to just give you a sense of the insights that instantly begin occurring to you as soon as you reconstruct the world of their choices. Insights about our systems of information, about mm -hmm. our systems for doing crisis management and all these hundreds of communities, are the tools that were available and the resources that were available to do stuff. The problem in our crisis wasn't that we weren't willing to spend money. We were willing to spend colossal sums of money. Absolutely. Um, the political will to spend money was there. The problem is we didn't know how to spend it. We didn't have the tools or institutions to use it well. And this on top, of course, as you know, in our country, 
we also had um, a unique situation with our president and the information and political environment that started to really surround this crisis from about April 2020 onward. So you've you've been very patient. You've let me go on for a little while. That's but I wanted to for the benefit you asked. You started with a question about how did you approach the problem of staffing? And I gave you an answer that was partly about staffing, but then I gave you a long digression about approach. So instead of the hindsight AB study approach, it's an approach in which you really need to empathize and understand the world people live through. And then you begin to see the kind of staff you need to do that sort of reconstruction. Let me remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Philip Zellico today. And well, I'm really, I didn't see it as a, a digression at all. I think it's a, it's a really important set of insights about the way that a commission could undertake a disaster that's ongoing. And, and I wanted to ask you about, about that aspect of it as you think about the, the COVID planning commission, COVID commission planning group. Do you imagine that this that a COVID commission should be initiated right away? In other words, I mean, one of the problems with this disaster is that we don't know. I mean, terms like endemic are thrown around, but I think they're thrown around too casually. I mean, this, this disaster will have repercussions for a long time, but it may be ongoing in a quite serious way in different countries. I don't, I don't even know the time horizon at this point, but it's, it's not near. So should we be thinking that we would wait until something is is over? It sounds like what you're describing is a method that you would put into place right away and begin reconstructing the kinds of decisions that policymakers and public health officials had to make, but that we wouldn't wait till it's over to begin that work. And, th and that might be a little different. No, I, if, if we even know when it will be over. Right, was, exactly. Than, and, is that uh, your advice, that so we should start right away? Oh, we should have started at least six months ago. Really? We're already late. Um, you and uh, you co-authored a piece back in 2020 that talked about the value of having having investigation boards that were ready to go. And in your piece, um, you should give yourself more credit because in your piece, you quoted people who said it's best to get on this while, while memories are fresh and move pretty quickly. And that's by the way, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's it's one. Um, it's best to get to people while while it's all fresh. Two. Um, it's best to it, it, it's going to take a long time to do this work, and so if you get started quickly, you'll have your work ready while you still have intense a, a, a political window to act on the crisis. Mm. If you wait, like uh, let's wait till the crisis is over, then wait for a report to come out a year or more after that, by that time, the political window may have, fraction may have closed. Uh, the 9-11 Commission actually was set up late, in my view, mm -hmm. and, um, and that was set up 
um, about a year and a half after the crisis. Right. Yeah. Most um, people might not remember that. So we're now talking about a commission that at a minimum would get going about two and a half years after the crisis broke out, if the commission was created today. Right. Um, you can just, so the, and the nine, by the way, because the nine 11 commission was late, some misinformation about nine 11 had already had a chance to get going. Uh, because the government had garbled some stuff about what had happened on the morning. And then it took our commission actually to straighten that out um, and mm. clarify the various accounts. Um, and already we were dealing with a cloud of misinformation that we had to try to sort. That situation is much worse now. Um, and it gets worse as time passes. Uh, so uh, there's a third point, which is if you if we were to create successfully a nonpartisan group of outstanding Americans liaising with people in other countries, I think we could we could create a vehicle to help Americans come together and get another source of authoritative advice and understanding that could be useful in real time in a situation where we have now. Um, two warring information environments about the crisis. Um, and in that environment, a commission could only, I think, help bring people together in a situation where they're flying further and further apart. I think that's an important insight. And, and I wonder, you know, do you draw that based on the aftermath of the 9-11 commission? I mean, that was a best-selling book. And I've, you've said in other interviews that you thought that the 9-11 Commission report helped bring a sort of national closure to an event. And people, you know, younger listeners or people who may not remember, uh, there was a politically polarized nation in 2002 and three as well. It's not like everybody was joining together and celebrating the need for a commission. So there were political difficulties to right. overcome. And as you pointed out, um, even just getting the facts straight was not straightforward with 9-11. And we purported, gave our report in the midst of a presidential election year. Now, what I, I, don't, I don't want your listeners to think that 9-11 report created a, you know, a, 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 a wide circle of Americans joining hands and singing Kumbaya. Right. Um, no. What, what happened was is that, of course, people from different points of view cherry-picked from our report to, to, to make arguments from our report that favored their cause. Sure. Um, this is natural. <laughs> but what, we, what you created, though, was a situation in which, at last, people had a reasonably sound, common, factual foundation from right. which they could work. Um, then they would, re they would still have plenty of arguments. But the, the arguments uh, occurred in a different environment in which a lot of things, not everything, but a lot of things have been made clear. That's, uh, I, I think, very important because of sort of a shared narrative. And I wonder how you think about this with COVID. Even just getting past the question or, or taking on the question of the origin of the virus, which yes. is still something that the federal government today, I think, has not given a, a clear answer. And there may not be a clear answer forthcoming. But right. to be able to establish a narrative that lays out, you know, here are the, the different possibilities and the experts who've looked at it, and these are the options. And now let's move on to the next thing. Rather right. than, as I see it, the, the right. world's leading scientists 
not to try to get, not to try to force a consensus where maybe there is no consensus, but to then just lay out very calmly, like instead of people talking past each other with each side having its own argument and you have these two advocates, like instead, okay, we've heard the advocates from all sides. Uh, folks, uh, here's the, here are the best arguments and evidence from each side. Here's, uh, here's our best summary of what's known and the state of play of what's known. Now, though, let's look forward and figure out what it is we agree on that drives what needs to be done. For instance, take the origins issue, which you mentioned. Um, let's think you know this. Let's suppose you you one is convinced by evidence that this occurred naturally from what's called zoonotic spillover. Um, or let's suppose you think that this is that the virus came was caused by the research process mm -hmm. people call this the lab leak scenario but actually it's more complicated than that because it's possible the virus could have crossed over while you were collecting specimens in the jungle mm -hmm. or in bat caves um, and in that case the spillover could have occurred before the virus ever even got to a lab but it was a product of your research enterprise because you were out there you were sending people out to collect thousands of specimens to study it. Right. The point I want to make, though, is that in either of these schools, natural spillover, research-related crossover of some kind, what they have in common is a common agenda, a common argument about how to prevent pandemics. Mm -hmm. That is, the, the, the whole research enterprise was trying to prevent a pandemic. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. People so, have lost sight of that. Since... Uh, I mean, all the research programs that are now so controversial were pandemic prevention programs. So since we all agree we want to prevent a pandemic, what we have then is an argument about how best to do that. And if, and if there's risky research involved in pandemic prevention, okay, how do we regulate that research? How do we strike the balance? Uh, well, that's a great question. So whatever it's since there is risky research involved in working on these viruses uh let's then work on how to do the cost benefit setup and by the way the the regulatory approach can't just be american because most of the work on this is being done outside of america so therefore you need to try to build uh, a broader and broader consensus about how the world is going to try to manage this sort of risky research because we all want to prevent another global pandemic. Uh, we all want to solve this problem. So let's get together and figure out the best way to go forward. And there are big controversies about, about that. There are big controversies, for instance, on do I actually go out into the jungle and take and systematically take thousands of virus samples from animals? Or is that collection process itself uh, uh, very hazardous and not worth the cost, not worth the risk. Um, I've heard very good scientists take both sides of this argument. So when let's get a lot of people together and sort that one out um, and figure out how best, uh, at least what we would recommend as a possible area of consensus about how to go forward. Just want to remind listeners that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Philip Zellico today. And so just lingering on this international issue for a second, um, you know, this is a transnational disaster. I think that's characteristic of, of disasters that we're facing uh, in the world today. 
think about climate change, slow moving disasters like climate change or a more rapid one like like the pandemic. Um, strikes me we have to be able to do this kind of commission work also across international boundaries. So I wonder, you know, just in terms of thinking about organization for a second, it, it doesn't strike me, but I'd like to know what you think, that this is something the United States Congress is going to pass a law and say, here's your commission. And even if it did, it seems to me it might be insufficient because the episode you just described would involve the collaboration of multiple nations doing just the zoonotic spillover question right. alone, and not to mention the raft of questions that would be behind it. So talk a little bit about what do you actually think the organizational form could look like? And if it's transnational, how do we do that? I think it actually will be very hard to create a global commission that works transnationally. Um, I could go on about this for a while. I've actually worked overseas and worked in internet with international institutions. So I have some field experience on this. And mm. um, I, I'll just say that I think that that would be very hard. It would be that would that then would try to open up government records and interview people in 50 countries. No, I think not likely. So what I think will happen is a variety of national investigations in which the United States should set an example. But one of the ways it should set an example is with significant liaison to other national investigations and to other national sensors of knowledge. For instance, in Korea, where you are, there are some very good people. And so what you'd want then is a nationally based investigations that are then reaching out to other nationally based investigations in order to pool and share learning from their different experiences. Um, now, in the organization of an American commission, which I think should be exemplary, you can either have that created by an act of Congress, or you can have that created independently, say with private foundations, but enabled by agreements from with support from the administration and in Congress to help make people and records available, and also working with various state and local authorities to to get some access to some of their people and, and records that are necessary to do the right kind of work. Um, there are pros and cons to each of these models, the, the Congress created model and the independent privately sponsored model having to do with powers, authorities, political base, and so on. It's a long discussion in which I have been much involved. But the bottom line is that if political leaders in our country want this to happen, especially in the Biden administration, it is doable. Um, money will not be the obstacle. Um, the obstacle really is the commitment of political leadership to want to do this. Um, and that has not yet been forthcoming in the United States. It uh, is forthcoming though in, a number, in several other countries. Yeah. I wanna call out, um, Sweden has already done an investigation of, of what it's done. Brazil has completed a large investigation with sensational results in Brazilian politics. Um, uh, very prominently, the British government has just announced that it will hold a massive public inquiry in, into the crisis with full uh, access to all evidence, cross-examination of witnesses, all authorities, everything, and that that and they've named the head of that investigation, um, a Baroness Hallett, and uh, that 
public inquiry is scheduled to start early in 2022. So those are important models for the United States to be thinking about. Uh, and I, I wanted to just along those lines, ask you about how political will gets built in a situation like this and casting back to 9-11, you know, the, the, the moral authority of victims' families and yes. the moral authority of survivors is powerful. And, and of course, it, it's not, and, and there's tensions that go along with that. And I know the 9-11 Commission had to navigate some of those, uh, but it's really important to point out that, for example, the World Trade Center collapse study, uh, which was done by the National Institute of Science and Technology, um, was spurred in many ways by victim support family members who really pushed and pushed and pushed. Yes, and so as was the 9-11 Commission, too. Both those investigations um, um, relied a lot on uh, the lobbying efforts of uh, several victims groups. Um, some are more well-known than others. Um, some of the most important 9-11 victims groups are actually not very well-known. But we're actually, but we're extremely well organized and influential. Um, I want to. This is. It's your question is right on point. In the in in the UK and Britain, the victims are already extremely well organized hmm. and are highly vocal and have already played a key part in the in in the current government's agreement to hold the public inquiry. The victims groups in the United States are not yet as well organized. There are some, and we've worked with some of them. Um, I want to really call out the work of a woman named Kristen Orquiza um, and and her colleagues um, who have uh, uh, their organizations called Marked by COVID. They're not the only victims group. There is also a set of long COVID victims groups and others. Who, and we've talked to a number of them, and they're very good. But... Um, they have not yet fully realized the scale of the potential political clout because this crisis, as you know very well, has touched a wide fraction of the American population to really a almost a unique degree among any modern crisis and in all sorts of ways, economically, health-wise. And if the, that latent political energy is mobilized. It'll be. It could be unstoppable. But it's not. It's not as mobilized here as it as it is in the UK. It's uh, just right now. But people are working on it and they're trying. Just following on from that, you know, commissions in the past, nine eleven commission to take one example, have also been generative of research that follows beyond that. In fact, they can help set a research agenda, which can be a powerfully important research agenda. I think this was true in terrorism studies in the United States. Yes, that's true. After, after 9-11. And so I, I feel like that's another, that's another possible strength in a case that could be made for a COVID commission, that this would- It is, um, and, it, and very important to keep in mind that a COVID, none of these commissions can provide the last word. Of course. None of them can be, quote, definitive. That's not the point. Um, and, and then if people say, well, this commission should answer all questions. Uh, no. Um, what it can, the goal is, is to take a, tr a massive crisis, both a global and national crisis, when, uh, probably the largest and most impactful since 1945, at least in our country. 
and possibly the world and 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 assemble and help create a relatively sound foundation of understanding of common understanding from which then you can build and uh, all sorts of further work opening up different questions but by first at least taking stock talking to hundreds of people assimilating a lot of experiences um, and then directing the work around in our case we think four major tracks um, different task forces um, that focus on broadly different themes and to help people fundamentally begin to make sense of what they've experienced and come together a little bit more about how to solve problems not just that not just the culture war debates i want to stress uh, too um, at the outset you cited the number of people who died from COVID globally using the Johns Hopkins uh, numbers. Um, we think those numbers are way, way off. Uh, just are just not really reliable at all. Um, globally, anyway. Um, the because we think that the only reliable numbers are excess mortality numbers. Hmm. That they're also when you get into the details about how the data is collected and. It, there are so many problems. There are many problems just in the United States, and our data is relatively good. When you get outside the United States and a handful of developed countries, the data is just uh, just almost forget about it. So excess mortality is relatively more reliable. Uh, a number of people have been doing that's also hard, but better. The best numbers on excess mortality give median global numbers of excess deaths that are in the range of 15 to 20 million, mm -hmm. 15 to 20 million, which is like triple. The triple. Right? We're now, we're, we're now um, really approaching, um, you know, the, uh, if, remember World War II kills about 50 million people. Um, World War, you know, so just to give, this isn't, the scale of this is really very large. It is entirely possible another, that's yet another 10 million people could be killed globally by this disease in the next year or so. Because um, as Omicron tears through populations, I think, um, especially in, in communities that don't have strong vaccination and haven't been seasoned yet by uh, millions of infections, there's still quite a lot of vulnerability out there. We're almost up on time, but I, I just wanted to you know, come back to what a commission could accomplish. And, you know, again, uh, and I want to acknowledge Patrick Roberts, who's a real expert on FEMA and on commissions, and he's written in this question about the, the goals of commission. We've touched on some of these, but do you think it's possible? And again, given the polarization in the United States today and the odd media environment, multiple media environment that we live in, Recommendations could come forward from a commission like this that would be taken up in Congress? Would they be taken up in state houses? Where would you be looking for the impact of this commission and, and in what form? Because it could be legislative, but you've touched in some other very interesting areas, Philip, that it could be a bit more diffuse, almost a sort of a, a space for cultural understanding. Or right. dare I say, and I'm really reserved when I say this, but a sort of rebuilding of trust and expertise to a certain degree. Oh There's gosh, a lot of work uh, to do. you're putting it so well, though, Scott. Um, the 
I mean, beyond, I mean, people ask me like, what's the biggest impact of the 9-11 Commission report? And I can point to this or that bureaucratic innovation, um, which uh, that's not the most important. The bureaucratic innovations are not the most important thing. The most important thing was that people, um, there was a, uh, um, a general sense of a broader, like we have a better understanding of what really happened here and what was important. Um, that see, if you have a better understanding of what happened, all sorts of insights then just spill out of that. Let me, I'll just give you a, a small illustration from the 9-11 story. Before the, we did our report, um, there was a common belief that the key thing you needed to look at in order to try to track terrorists was to follow the money. Terrorist finance was the mm -hmm. big, was a big subject. And we have a task force that worked terrorist finance. But people who read our report realized, for instance, oh, the terrorist finance story here was trivial. What was really interesting was terrorist travel. And as people realize that the travel issues were actually a key way, a key node at which you could stop terrorists, that insight then led to thousands of innovations, you know, all the like no-fly lists, the forms people, all sorts of things all over the world that just flowed from that insight, aha, that's really much more cost-beneficial than to try to chase a few thousand dollars here and there when there are many examples like this is where people if they fundamentally understand the story better they'll work out for themselves all sorts of ways in which that gives them insight the other theme that you touched on scott which is so important is um, it's really important that we come out of this crisis with renewed attention to competent governance. How do we solve public problems? What's happened in this crisis is it's turned into a culture war over, well, do you care about public health or do you care about the economy? Right. Do you listen to science or you don't, or you don't believe in the elite scientists? You know, that culture problem, which takes people away from can where most people in my country anyway, and I know in Korea, mostly they want to come together like, what's the problem and what, what can we do about this? Mm -hmm. And see, when you focus on concrete problems and what to do, that tends to bring people together. And it tends to um, remind Americans that we used to be famous in the 20th century for what good pragmatic problem solvers we were. We were we were fame. Americans were even almost uh, mocked, but but admired for being non-ideological, famous. We don't know from these political parties, but we know how to build an airstrip on this island. Right. Right. <laughs> and um, but uh, there was a sense that the Americans were the can-do country. That was the mid-20th century image. What perhaps our, what we can do and what a commission could do is help re reset our focus back on how do we become a can-do country again? How do, we over, how do we use this crisis in which we weren't terribly effective at doing a lot of things to kind of recover the moxie of the kind of people we used to be, where people used to want to learn from us about how to do stuff? 
And I think if you go around the United States, those people and that culture is still there. But I think we need to bring it back into the foreground. Well, I want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls live weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow at 6 p.m. when I'll be talking to Professor Kevin Coakley about the racism COVID syndemic concept in a paper that he's been working on with colleagues about that. Join me for that. And I really want to thank my guest. What an honor to speak to Philip Zelikow, uh, the former executive director of the 9-11 Commission and now leading the COVID Commission planning group, which is running out of COVIDCPG.org. COVIDCPG.org. Please do check that out. And um, I hope we get a chance to talk again, because I think this is going to be a work in progress, but um, I really hope it succeeds, honestly. No, and your questions are so knowledgeable, Scott, and you yourself have worked and thought about these issues and it showed. Thank you so much, Philip, and uh, be well. And everybody, we'll see you tomorrow, 6 p.m., COVID calls.